Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth interviews with some of the most accomplished and influential songwriters out there, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer sharing his or her insights into the creative process, their approach to the craft, their influences, and the stories behind their songs, from the hits to some of the lesser-known deep cuts. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think by sharing your thoughts with us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to What Goes Around Comes Around, credited to Nescobar Alaplop and the Camden County Band, better known as the theme song to the mid-2000s TV series My Name is Earl. Nescobar was the name of a minor character on the show, but the actual writer and performer on that track is our Grammy-winning guest on today's edition of Songcraft, Jeff Silbar. Though best known as the co-writer of the contemporary standard Wind Beneath My Wings, Jeff has appeared in the top 40 on Billboard's pop, country, and adult contemporary charts a total of 28 times. With deep roots as both a songwriter and a music publisher in Nashville and Los Angeles, his songs have been recorded by a diverse range of artists, including John Cougar Mellencamp, Fleetwood Mac, Kenny Rogers, Alabama, Dolly Parton, Greg Allman, Leon Russell, Lou Rawls, Reba McIntyre, Willie Nelson, and many others. In addition to winning Song of the Year awards from the Academy of Country Music, the Country Music Association, and the Recording Academy, he has received more than 30 ASCAP Performance Awards. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. That's most impressive. (laughs) Hopefully I can get a copy of that when we're done. Of course. (laughs) Well, I want to start out by talking about Wind Beneath My Wings, which obviously looms large as both a country and a pop standard. Tell us the story of when you originally wrote that song in the early 1980s. Larry Henley and I had just had a hit record. I think it was number one by a girl named Janie Fricky. It was called Heartache Looking for a Place to Happen. And uh, we were ready to write our second song. I remember the day started like any other day. We were going to write in the morning. And uh, I was learning to fly at the time. And oh, you were a pilot. soloed huh. yeah, in my little uh, Cessna. And uh, so I was full of myself. I came in and we were going to write a song. And um, Somebody had fooled my guitar, actually, and it broke the E string, I remember. So I only had five strings, and I don't know. The, the word of the day was Bob Seger, because we heard he was looking for songs. So that was what I sat down that day to write. So we set off musically to write a mid... We were in mid-tempo kind of rock-pop land. Hmm. Yeah. Looking for an idea and getting nowhere, and I asked Larry, could I borrow his writing pad? And within a few pages, in the margin was the word, the wind beneath my wings. And it, you know, hit me like a, a bolt. And I said, this is like, this is the song we've got to write today. Oh, wow. Right. Larry said that he had had that idea for a while and had never written it. So it was my, I was very fortunate. And we set off and we wrote this song. And we had, uh, we had it pretty quick. Although we didn't have hero in the chorus. We had I Can Fly Higher Than an Eagle, You Are the Wind Beats My Wings, but we didn't have the first part of the chorus till the next morning. And that I remember clearly. That was a, a Thursday, I believe, because uh, Friday we had a demo, and I was in charge at the time of doing producing the demos for our company, House of Gold Music. And we stuck that on there, the fifth song of a four-song demo. 
<laughs> and if you know Larry Henley at all, he was a lead singer for a band called The New Beats. Right. Oh, of course. And he was a guy who sang, I like bread butter. Right. <laughs> so imagine a mid-tempo, rushed version of Wind Meets My Wings with this guy singing way up high. <laughs> right. And we knew we had a good song, but that weekend I got a call from my publisher, and he was just really excited. He said, I'd written a standard. And I said, which one? <laughs> which of these demoed said, songs? Which of the five? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I remember well. He said, come on down and listen to it. I said, well, I have a copy of it right here, Bob, Bob Montgomery. He said, nope, get your ass in the car, come on down. It was wintertime, I believe. So I come to the office, and that was the first time I ever heard The Wind Beneath My Wings played as a piano vocal. And slowly, uh, there was a writer-artist at the time, he was going to produce, and he had heard that song, and he had put the song down that Saturday. So I I remember just being blown away, because I remember the room also, too. It was wood floors and all this old antique furniture, and he had a big, great stereo, you know, Macintosh amps and everything. So I'm sitting there, and here comes the wind beneath my wings, and it was one of those good days, you know. Yeah, so Bob Montgomery, he took your demo and just basically made a completely new arrangement of it. Absolutely. Wow. He was a great publisher, and I was working for him as a publisher at the time as well. I was hot-shotting all around Nashville. We had a great group of writers, so I remember, you know, I had a pretty high bar in my mind, and uh, I was writing songs a little bit, but since I was producing those demos, I remember I, sometimes the players would let me sneak an extra song without having to pay them, you know, yeah. right at the end. And so that's how that happened. Bob Montgomery was part of the duo Buddy and Bob with Buddy Holly way back, right? Yeah, very good. He was, he was early on with Buddy Holly and his silent partner uh, was Bobby Goldsboro. Oh, I see. And he wrote so, Misty uh, Blue too, didn't he? And he, yeah. Yeah, so he was my you know, guy. Now, people might not realize this, but Wind Beneath My Wings wasn't really a, a huge hit right out of the gate. Who was the first artist to cut it? Good question. Um, I might have to say B.J. Thomas, although I don't know if it ever came out. Chet Atkins heard the song and cut it on B.J. Thomas. Then there was a guy named Roger Whitaker who had just come off this big worldwide hit that I think it was... Uh, Chet was producing him. The Last Farewell, was that the... Yeah, that was Roger Whitaker's. Yeah. So he did it. But prior to that, uh, I'm telling you, we wrote this song. My publisher, Bob, says it's a big smash. And I want to tell you, it was a year before anyone cut it. And we played it for everybody. Everybody passed. And then all of a sudden, people started cutting that song. Like every month, someone would cut it. Wow. Yeah. And they knew that somebody had just cut it. And it hadn't, didn't even matter because it actually said something that somebody wanted to say in their careers, you know. I remember Sheena Easton recorded it and Lou Rawls. Yeah, I think the Lou Rawls version, the, the whole first verse, he actually spoke it. He probably did. I know Gladys, she went up an octave on the second verse, was so fantastic. Go unnoticed 
Man, I love to hear Gladys Knight sing. I was fortunate enough to be in the studio, too, and she did. Really? But, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, Gary Morris. And uh, that was an interesting time because there's Lee Greenwood had recorded it. Really? And it was scheduled to be the next single, and I think it was God Bless the USA Days. I can't remember. I had another hit record with Lee Greenwood, I, can't, I think after. I can't remember, but... So I was really excited about this version. Lee Greenwood, he sang the heck out of it, and I need to play it again just to refresh my memory. But I remember Gary Morris came to my office and played me The Wind Beneath My Wings, and I said, that's great, Gary. But you know it's going to be Lee Greenwood's next single. He said, no, it's not. We're just putting it out right now. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there's no law stopping that. It's the second song off the album. You know, the album's out. I went, no, don't, you can't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, he can, and they did. So for years, as that thing you know, went up and became a country, big hit record, really, really. I think it was Song of the Year that year. Yeah, it was the CMA Song of the Year, uh, Academy of Country Music Song of the Year, of course, a top 10 country single. Um, and I'm sure that that would be a career highlight for any songwriter. But then five years later, it finds a new home when Bette Midler recorded it for her film Beaches. How did that come about? Well, let's just, uh, somewhere in there, I'd moved to Los Angeles, and I was representing Sony at the time. It was still Tree, Tree Publishing. Which is now Sony ATV. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I remember it was uh, Buddy Killen and Jack Stapp and... And I remember that the time change in Nashville is two hours later, so about 7 o'clock every morning I'd be getting this phone call from their, you know, they were having their morning meetings. What have you done? What are you doing? I had never worked so hard. I, I had to be everywhere all the time. And Meanwhile, I was a pretty good songwriter, and I wasn't writing. And uh, finally, I get a call from my brother saying, Hey, uh... I'm going to go see this rough cut of a movie called Beaches because he was an aspiring actor at the time. And so I said, you know, I think i got a song in there. I'll go with you. And I remember seeing Beaches for the first time. Rough cut with my song was Tempt In with a MIDI track. Bette Midler kind of scatting it right <laughs> And I remember leaving there going, oh, my goodness, this is, this is going to be something. Right. Wow. I remember calling back to uh, Nashville to Larry and going, Larry, we got something really cooking here. And he said, yeah, I heard. They just called me, and she changed some words. And, and uh, you know, I've just heard it was the only song in the movie that she's not singing on the movie, in the movie. She said, I don't want it to happen. Oh, <laughs> man. Jeez. <laughs> he says, I've let him know I refuse. This song's a big hit song. She said, she can't just go change some lyrics. I said, well, uh, let me just tell you, Larry, It's I think you should be quiet. And then about two days later, I get a call from Warner Brothers, who publishes the song. And... Uh, they had been hearing this big stink from Larry, and, and uh, actually the word went down. They told him to, like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> right. That was the best what I heard yeah. anyway. And it you know, <laughs> went on to be a really big song in my career. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you, though, they rushed them, that movie out. I remember the time, too. They rushed that movie out right before Academy Awards. It didn't do much. They put out Under the Boardwalk as the first single, so that my song didn't come out until springtime or early summer in a weird format. I remember it was the most 
dance craze, disco craze, you know, yeah, and it came right. into charts in the 90s, and it just took forever and ever, but which is what songwriters want. It just yeah. kept going yeah. up the charts. Build its royalties. It was a really great ride. Well, let's hear a little bit of Bette Midler's iconic version of Wind Beneath My Wings. Bette's version, of course, went to number one on the pop chart, but the song has really become a modern-day standard. It's been recorded by Patti LaBelle, Peggy Lee, um, Perry Como, Tom Jones, Judy Collins, Kenny Rogers, Willie Nelson, and the list, of course, goes on and on. Um, And I would imagine it's probably being sung at this very moment somewhere at a karaoke bar in the world. Um, I actually read that in 2002, the BBC reported that Wind Beneath My Wings was the number one most requested song for funerals in the UK. Uh, When was the first time that it really hit you how significant a song it was? Well, we wrote that song from a man to a woman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we thought it was really cool that a man would say to his woman, you are my hero. That's the gist of the song, we thought. But then we came to figure that out not too long, like a couple of weeks later, that what it really was was the, a really cool, the ultimate way to say thank you to somebody. It was a thank you song. And no, there really hadn't been that kind of song. Right. So we realized that there were all these fastest people thanking their parents and their doctors and their everything, you know? Yeah. And we started hearing people tell us what that song meant to us and why. And it was just, you know, it didn't take me long to kind of get over the fact that I wrote it and get into the fact that music and how music can touch people's lives. And uh, it is profound, that song. Because I, I can be reading a novel or watching TV and people just use those words wow. yeah. to communicate. You know, it's become part of the vernacular of right well and it's interesting it's like you take the ego out of it i mean we've heard songs like i'll be there or you've got a friend where the narrator is kind of the the one who shows up to help the narrator's the backbone the one who's leaned on but this kind of flips the script and the singer is the one who's saying i appreciate you yeah. i needed you yeah and, and i can fly higher than an eagle see and even so anybody who's ever achieve, achieved something there's somebody you know the wind beneath their wings yeah, and becomes universal it, it's universal yeah so i i want to go back and, and kind of find out how you got to this point yeah uh, you start off you're a kid growing up in kentucky and then so you come to nashville tell us how you got there and got started making music in nashville i was doing music nashville was four hours away it was summertime so we started out with that and i, I you know i was busking on the street i was down there lower broad with my buddy joe turley he played the harmonica and the guitar and i played the guitar and we we would many a night be down there playing for trying to get enough money to play the slot machines. And he was a <laughs> pinball wizard. Honestly, he would actually, we'd come away on a good night with real money. Back then, they paid you money. Wow. Yeah. And so that was, I remember that. And I remember writing songs in a little wallen sack, you know, in our, in our apartment, which you could overdub on. So I was bouncing stuff back and forth 
trying to make demos. And then you wound up getting a job in, in music publishing. Tree at, publishing company. Yeah, at Tree. Which is where I really got my first real taste of greatness, man. There were some fantastic songwriters there at the time. Mm. Yeah. And I was I grew into the job of being a uh, the guy, uh, not the engineer, but I was the engineer. We put every song down, guitar, vocal. Everybody had a half an hour to do two songs. They could come in and play two songs in their half an hour. Wow. Oh, man. And so, I mean, there were great writers. I also remember John Hyatt was there, too. Oh, that's cool. And uh, one thing I remember about John was he'd come in, and he'd uh, tell me to slam the stereo over to the left, and he'd play and sing the song, and then I'd slam it to the right, and we would put on a second guitar and a harmony. So... He'd put down two songs in a half an hour. Right. They had harmonies and stereo <laughs> guitars. Oh, right. man. So, so those days at Tree would have been like Roger Miller, Bobby Braddock, those kind of guys? Yeah, Roger Miller and Conway Twitty and Harlan Howard. Wow. Bobby Braddock was there. Hank Cochran was there. It goes on and on. You want to know the truth? Yeah. So, was your goal to be a songwriter at that point, or to be in the publishing business, or no? I had left in the summer from Lexington, Kentucky, to come down, and you know, I was in bands and fooling around with writing songs, but I just knew I wanted to be in the music business instead of be a doctor. And if I could just somehow figure out how to pull that off, I was going to do it. I got a job around the music business from a company, Bill Hudson and Associates, which was an advertising agency, and their one of their clients was Tree. Yeah. Well, so of course you kind of got your foot in the door working for a music publisher. You did obviously ultimately become a songwriter, and your first charting single was "Sleep Tight, Good Night Man," which was wow. a top twenty country hit for Bobby Bear in late 1978. Let's hear a little of that record. I am here. I'm gonna help you sleep. Count on. My neighbor uh, was a folky, Sam Lorber, and so I'd come home at night and he would be playing me these songs and I finally said, okay, let's write a song. I said, Sam, we're going to co-write a song, but I don't care how long it takes until it's done, until I say it's done, it's not done because this this has to be great because I'm going to risk my career and sneak a song on a demo. And that was the first song we had ever written, Sleep Tight, Good Night, Man. Really? So that... Now, that was my first cut. That was the first song. So Sleep Tight, Good Night Man also appeared on Kenny Rogers' quadruple platinum album, The Gambler. And you've had so much activity on the country charts, but I, I really hear a, a pop sensibility in a song like this. Uh, when you were starting out, were you more influenced by country writers or pop writers? Well, I remember when I was 14 with my ukulele and uh, doing Ricky Nelson songs. And then I, you know, flash forward to the Beatles and all that. But I think what really got me probably was the California scene back then. You know, there was all that good Laurel Canyon stuff going on. And I heard it and I wanted to be a part of it very early on. So my country was kind of hippie country, you know, Graham Parsons and 
and shit, right. that kind of stuff. And the Eagles and then Ronstadt and there were certain guys out here writing these songs, Jack Tempchin and people like that. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and it wasn't twangy, but it was soulful songs. Right. Yeah. You listen to them now, and it's pretty country if you think about it. <laughs> sure. So when I went to Nashville, my, you know, I I loved Hank Williams, but I also loved the outlaw guys, you know, and uh, Willie Nelson and Willie Jennings and that whole thing. And that's exactly when I hit town. Right. Know? Right before it got real corporate, so I actually yeah. I think I saw the last big wave of the coolest part of Nashville wow. there was. Yeah. I was there for almost ten years. Hmm. Well, it sounds like you soaked up a lot of great influences though during your time in Nashville, from the publishing company and, and on. Without a doubt, well, I was the first guy to actually create the library at Tree. So I mean, I really heard lots and lots of songs. I, I felt like that's what made me a great publisher. You know, you listen to all these songs, and a couple of them would jump out, and I got to be known as being able to be, uh, you know, pretty good ears. Is what, and and uh, so I think Bob Montgomery recognized that, and when I went to work for him, he kind of stole me from Tree on the elevator. I remember that. Yes, I know you went to work for Bob's company, uh, House of Gold, um, really to work on the publishing side, but also as a songwriter. And that's where you started having some of these early successes, uh, some by yourself, but a lot, of course, with uh, Sam Lorber, who we've talked about. Yeah, we had a nice little run in there. Yeah, and I want to ask you a little bit about that partnership with Sam. Um, You know, every partnership works differently. But did you guys have defined roles when you approached the song? Uh, one guy would kind of be the lyric guy and one the melody guy? Or, or did you both kind of uh, approach both of those parts of the craft? Yeah, we were uh, pretty much on the same page with that. I have to say, though, I was at that point you know, pitching songs. So I was always coming back with a little bit of knowledge, like this guy's looking for this, this guy's looking for that. And that was invaluable. And I, about that time, too, I was kind of run into Los Angeles to pitch songs to Los Angeles. So I'd come back, you know, I remember the punk scene was happening. I'd come back with all this punk energy and saying, we need to write songs like this. Right. And, and so I think that's probably why I was real successful in Nashville, because my songs had a whole different thing going. <laughs> we were trying to write for Fleetwood Macs of the world, and sure. we were getting them cut in Nashville, because it was right. right at the time, you know, where a lot of crossover, Ann Murray and Kenny Rogers, and a lot of people were getting out on the pop radio and they hadn't done that in a long time yeah and i know that you and sam had a number one song on the adult contemporary charts uh by lobo in 1979 where were you when i was falling in love Yeah, well, that's that's a song I'm really proud of. Where were you when I was falling in love? That's a song that's going to have another life. And uh, we used Fleetwood Mac as the blueprint for that. I mean, they were super hot, and we just you know got the groove going and wrote a Fleetwood Mac song, and boom, like I said, 
We got it got cut by somebody else. Was that a song that had been pitched out of Nashville? Bob Montgomery, once again, uh, this guy Kent Lavoy, who was Lobo, and uh, we we were he was in the office one day. We were just playing songs, and that song got played, and that's what made him want to cut it. Yeah, I don't know if he was even ready to make a record, but he recognized it as a hit song. Well, we've we've talked about Sam, but uh, in the early 1980s, other co-writers began to appear on your credits. Um, You and Johnny Slate wrote Don't Look Now, But We Just Fell in Love, which was a hit for Eddie Arnold. Wow. Um, Then you and Sam uh, partnered with Tim Dubois and Van Stevenson for Marty Robbins' Tiger Dream to Mine. Uh, And then you and Van Stevenson collaborated again on the song All My Life, which Kenny Rogers took to number two on the adult contemporary chart, as well as top 20 country and top 40 pop. Were you intentionally branching out to work with new co-writers in that era? Well, you just reminded that Eddie Arnold song. See, I completely forgot about it. I bet that's not even on my list. (laughs) But that... uh... Now I got to go find that song. You know, that's how you know when you got a lot of big hit songs when you have an Eddie Arnold cut and you completely forget about it. Yeah, when you think about <laughs> my career, you tell me I had songs on by Eddie Arnold. Well, that is, I mean, and that I is think that, a lot. I believe that song actually went to number eleven on the country singles chart. Really, no amazing. I guess what I was wondering is you had had, you know, the success with Sam. So were you intentionally broadening your co-writer circle at this point to incorporate other people? Um, I don't think it was intentional. I just think it was uh, I started having success. And that's when, you know, the writers in our stable started wanting to hang out with me. So So these new writers that you were working with were people that were already working at the publishing company. We had what we thought was like the little Brill building, man. We had the greatest scene I've I've been trying to replace that in in my life. We had a uh, a house, a writer's house, and a pretty secretary, and a great coffee machine. <laughs> and there was no place I would rather be. I'd stay up there real late and come back real early in the morning. And yeah. every morning there'd be people standing around, and uh, with a little luck, somebody said, "Hey, you want to write a song?" Or I, Better yet, I got a great song idea. Yeah. Let's write a song. Oh, cool. So I remember uh, I was, I, I couldn't even take a vacation. I couldn't relax because somebody was going to write that next song without me, you know. <laughs> so I was yeah. just writing the Nashville thing, you know, to a day. Well, speaking of branching out, you had some rock success when John Mellencamp, uh, who was, of course, John Cougar at the time, recorded one of your songs. Let's hear a little bit of China Girl. There's an example for you. The first time I heard that 
cut. I was in, I think, a grocery store or a clothing store. And then here's my song by John Cougar, Up Tempo. Because that song was written as a, like a dreamy, kind of trippy song uh, with Van Stevenson, for Van Stevenson. And bef even before John Cougar, uh, Levon Helm was in town. I managed to sneak out to Bradley's Barn where they were cutting that Bradley's Barn album and uh, lay that song on him, and he cut it. So that's where John Cougar heard it, I guess. It was never pitched to him. Wow. So for me to hear that uh, was pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and that album, of course, had Hurt So Good and Jack and Diane, and I think your song was actually the only song on there that wasn't written by Mellencamp himself, which is pretty cool, and it went five times platinum. You know, that was back in the day, man, record sold. Yeah, and, and around that same time, 1983, you had a number one country song with Janie Fricky's recording of He's a Heartache Looking for a Place to Happen, which you had alluded to before. But you can't be Um, tell us a little bit about that song. I had gotten a uh, early drum machine that went boom, 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 boom. So you put that with a rockabilly guitar and you're slamming. And yeah. That, and that was me that day. And we wrote this song. That was a song where that was a song where when we were done, I knew I had a hit song. Right. Mm, it was just a yeah. matter of, you know, some of them you feel really great about, and some of them have to come to you, you know. You know, there's one song that I want to ask you about. It's a song that I actually heard when I was a kid and liked a lot. Uh, another ballad called Till I Loved You by Restless Heart. And I, I remember learning that song on the piano, and it was pretty tough, man. The chord changes in that song are pretty advanced. And, you know, a lot of people talk about pop music, and they'll call it simple. But there's nothing simple about Till I Love You. And, and uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, records coming out around that time that had that same kind of complexity, like the David Foster records, and it must have been fun writing in that era. David Robbins was the co-writer on that one, and Dave's a piano player, and I was kind of, first little taste of my dream was I had a house in Nashville and a grand piano in it. So one of my favorite days was hey guys i'm not coming in today meet me at the house especially on a winter snow day you know and we would get out there and write songs on my grand piano looking out at the woods and we wrote that song i just thought it was incredibly sounded incredible in that room too mm. so in the early 1980s you relocated to los angeles why leave for california when you were at the top of your well, game well there's in two there's a, a lot of different things one was my that company I was with, House of Gold, got sold to Warner Brothers. And uh, I remember when the hatchet men came from Los Angeles, they told me, look, you can't be an executive at Warner's and be a songwriter at the same time. You have to make a choice. So that's kind of threw me for a loop. And I 
looked around. I said, well, am I going to be a corporate guy or a songwriter? I think I'll try that songwriter thing. That's what, for a while, you know. I was hot as a songwriter. But within about six months, I was not happy. I was uh, had too much time on my hands. And uh, I remember I called back to uh, Tree Publishing and said, hey, I'd, I want to move to California. I'm sure it was a winter time, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Probably. Uh, is there any way that uh, you give me a couple years and let me go out there and see what I can do for you guys? And so they were kind enough to let me do it. That's what got me to California. Yeah. And same thing. I had done that when I left Lexington. I had given myself two years. So, I mean, it was like nonstop. Uh, but I never went back to Nashville. Maybe my career suffered for it, but things were happening. I was going back and forth, and, uh, you know, I wrote a couple big hits. I wrote the Alabama hit here in the house. I wrote Tanya Tucker hit, I remember, and... I was writing songs for Winona and Reba, and so I was actually being able to pull off. Yeah, I mean, after relocating to Los Angeles, you continued to have success in the country field. There were uh, top 20 hits with Lee Greenwood, the Restless Heart song that Paul mentioned, uh, Dolly Parton, Alabama. So you were still very much finding country success, even in California. I was music all the time, everywhere. Uh, Somewhere in there, I think I got married, and somewhere in there, you start having kids. And, you know, then then you blink your eye and here we are today. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so obviously California didn't keep you from writing country music, but did being out here change the influences that you were hearing from day to day? Well, I'm a songwriter first and a producer second probably, but I have shelves full of me trying to be the hip sonic producer guy, and I'm a pretty good producer. But... I would say I'm just doing the same thing I've always done. I'm trying to keep it fresh and trying to get with young, fresh writers and artists. But ultimately, that's all I know to do. Uh, I can get real bogged down real quick in the toys, but uh, give me a good song idea, you know what I mean? I'll starve to death until it's done. Yeah. Your song Hard Feelings appeared on Fleetwood Mac's Behind the Mask album, which was released in 1990. wrote Hard Feelings with Billy Burnett, who joined the band on guitar after Lindsey Buckingham's departure. Did you write that song with the intention of it being a Fleetwood Mac cut? Well, I did. <laughs> <laughs> we wrote nice. three songs together, and they selected that song, which may or may not have been the best song, but I thought they did a great version of that song. Uh, 
it was one of the first, you know, anti-love songs. Do you find that you like writing songs with a specific artist in mind? I mean, in the case of Fleetwood Mac, it landed right where you wanted it to. But, you know, you spoke about Bob Seger being kind of a target for Wind Beneath My Wings. Um, you know, do you like writing songs with an artist in mind, or do you prefer to just let the chips fall where they may? Write a great song and see what happens. I really haven't had that much luck writing for uh, artists exactly. I, yeah, I just try to write the song. And lately I'm trying to write more up-tempo songs, but my biggest hits were probably ballads. But uh, ultimately, when, you, when I wake up in the morning, you kind of have about a half an hour or an hour in there where your thoughts are free and something's going to come in. That's kind of the way I do it. I'm best in the morning. And uh, so that's me. If somebody calls me the night before or says something that morning, I'm kind of letting the song come to that. Uh, if, if there's an artist in mind, maybe I'll think about it. But I can't think of too many occasions where I wrote the song for an artist and they turned around and cut it. It's always been somebody else. Now, are you a person that writes every single day? You, you kind of keep yourself on a schedule, or do you just wait till inspiration strikes? No, I write, I write every day that I can. But I, you, after a certain amount of years of doing it, there's like this little thing that goes off in your head going, this feels like work. And I try to re recognize that and get up and take a break. And because uh, I have burned through that many, many times and, and maybe pushed, pushed it. I uh, sometimes feel like these days that people want you to write a song in one day and have a little demo by the end of the day. I've never been one of those. And I, I like to polish them and live with them. And I'm very rarely, when I finish a song, do I jump on the phone and play it for anybody because I usually kind of hang back and make sure that it, it's got a life. Well, and I, I think that approach has probably served you well because you've certainly found success in various venues, in, including some high-profile film and TV placements. We mentioned the My Name is Earl theme at the top of the show, and uh, I was really a fan of My Name is Earl when that show was on, and I'd like to hear about how that opportunity came about. Well, I have a neighbor here in California who told me that he heard that there was going to be a new show and it was about reincarnation. So I write this song called, I called a really super talented friend of mine, Dylan O'Brien. We get together and we write this song, this great song called What Goes Around Comes Around. And I spend the next day making a demo of it. And we, you know, sent it off to those people. And I was on vacation. I get a call and say, hey, you got the theme. I said, you're kidding me. That is fantastic. And in the back of my mind, I knew that I was singing it. Right. Yeah. And I'm going, oh, this could be something. And then they said, yeah, but you know what? They, don't, they want an instrumental. <laughs> oh, man. Of course. <laughs> I said, oh, my goodness. And so they said, yeah, I want you to, you know, leave your vacation, come back and do some remixes and make it an instrumental. And I, so I did, I came back and I pulled the vocals off and I'm telling you, there wasn't much there. There was a beat and a bass line. And I said, this is not gonna happen. Uh, we gotta come up with something. So I, I remember getting my slide guitar out and my lap steel and I put together this little sound, I call it flipper. And with that kind of hip hop bottom end and flipper on the top, 
that was another case where as soon as I was done, I said, this is a hit. Yeah. It's just the way it is. I mean, they're going to go for it, and which they did. Yeah. And over the years, it's been interesting because, you know, they use less and less of it. <laughs> now I think it's down to boing. <laughs> but, but originally, I had this version, and I remember they, they called me one time and said, we're going to do a cast record of this. And so I at least saw the light of day because it's on that album. Right. right. It's on that cast album. Yeah. And uh, my name... I, it's, my name's not on it, is it? No, no. Yeah, so I've never had a Jeff Silbar record out before. Right, but I've had a, right. It was uh, credited to Nescobar, Alopalop, and the Camden <laughs> right. County Band. And you call me Nescobar. <laughs> right, perfect. <laughs> so what's next? I mean, you've you've had country hits and pop hits and rock hits and, and songs that have become standards. Uh, you've had success in TV and film. So what's what's the next thing out there for you that you really want to do? Three things that come to mind, actually. One is um, when we won the Grammy Song of the Year for Wind Beats My Wings, we didn't qualify for an Academy Award because the song wasn't written for that movie. So there's one thing kind of dangling out there. I am still holding out for a great opportunity. If anybody is listening, I want to write a song entitled for a film and win the Academy Award. So there's one for you. (laughs) The other one is uh, I'm uh, really enjoying, actually I'm getting out more and more and performing my own songs because my whole career I've hired singers and players and and people who I think are really responding to, uh, you know, my versions of things these days. So I'm enjoying that part of it. And, uh, you know, I've always got my ears open for us an artist that I want to work with. I think uh, writing more songs is cool, but I've got years of songs that I really, if I run across the right person, I kind of drop what I'm doing and we we go back and dig deep and come up with some songs. Yeah, well, I think that brings up an interesting question. Um, obviously, every songwriter dreams of writing a monster hit like Wind Beneath My Wings. And there's no doubt that that's been your greatest professional success, but you've obviously written a lot of songs. Um, Do you ever feel like perhaps the success of Wind Beneath My Wings has overshadowed some of your other great work? Yes, there there were times. I mean, there's a couple phases you go through when you write a big hit, and, you know, those... One is you... you, uh, you know, you want to have more hits and you try to outright that song and that's going to drive you nuts. Trying to write another Wind Beneath My Wings will drive you crazy. But uh, so I guess my release for that is, thank goodness, I'm a kind of a rock and roll guitar player. So that's what I would do in my spare time is rock out. Right. And I was known in the business when I moved to Los Angeles as the Wind Beneath My Wings guy. So I was getting a lot of calls to write the big ballad and I always hungered to be the cool guy in the rock pop world so you know i'm proud of the wind beneath my wings don't get me wrong i've kind of come to the point now where though if i never write another one i'm happy because that one right there you can be pretty far away from your little town of lexington kentucky i was just in china they knew the damn songs oh man that one got got around you know yeah Yeah, amazing well jeff i want to thank you so much for being our guest today on songcraft this has really been great thank you thanks again to jeff silbar for spending some time with us today on songcraft we hope you enjoyed today's episode and we look forward to bringing you more great conversations with great songwriters please stop by the itunes store leave us a review and let us know what you think 
And as always, we're at songcraftshow.com, where you can get all the info and see what's coming. We'll see you next time.